by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, you can go back to your parents. Thank you guys for coming up here. Parents, you can look at Romans chapter 4. It's not going to be on the screen today, but we're going to be talking about righteousness. We're going to be talking about the righteousness that we need. And you might begin to feel like, oh man, Kyle, Romans is starting to feel a little bit redundant, and it is. The way that Paul advances his argument in Romans, it's a little bit like this. Paul takes three steps forward, and then he kind of steps back. He kind of revises, he, he, he restates his argument, and then he takes a couple of steps forward, and then he takes a step back, and he kind of restates his argument again. So Paul is reminding us. He keeps moving us slowly through the passage. And so as we jump into Romans 4, I want to lead in with this one question. Is God keeping count of your sin? Is God, well, that's good news. Yes, you're absolutely right. And you just spoiled the sermon, brother, but you got it right. He said, no, God is not keeping count of your sin. Listen, let me tell you something. Seriously, is he keeping track of your failures? Is he watching and monitoring your disobedience? One of the most prolific poets of the 1990s said, only God can judge me. You know who that is? Huh? Say it out loud. Don't be ashamed. Tupac. Yeah, okay, then I see you. I see you. You guys know Tupac. I get it. He said only God can judge me, and he was right. He was right. God is the only one who can judge us, and he will. That is certain. We will stand in judgment before God. The only question is what will God see when we stand in judgment before him? We will stand in judgment before God. The only question is, what will God see when we stand in judgment before him? This is the question that Paul turns our attention to when he looks at Abraham in Romans chapter 4. So I'm going to read Romans 4 verses 1 through 8. Afterwards, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. There's an invitation for you to respond and to say, thanks be to God. Let me read Romans 4 verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here is what I want you to see about justification, okay? Here's what I want you to see about what it means to be justified. To be justified by God means that we are counted righteous and we are counted blessed because of God's great work. We are counted righteous and we are counted blessed because of God's great work. So let's look at righteous first. See, Paul has been addressing the Jewish confusion about their place in God's story. Keep in mind, he's writing a letter to the church in Rome. The church in Rome is made up, as you know now, of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And there's a problem. The Jewish Christians are sitting in judgment upon the Gentile Christians for one crucial reason. They believe that they are distinct in the eyes of God. 
And that distinctiveness comes in three spaces. One, they believe that they've been obedient to the law while the, Jewish, while the Gentile Christians have not been. They are the biological descendants of Abraham while the Gentile Christians are not. And because they have the seal and symbol of circumcision. And this sets them apart. And so Paul has been trying to show them, no, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian, circumcised, uncircumcised, it doesn't matter where you are, where you come from, who your great, 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 great grandfather is, what your life was like, whether you grew up in the synagogue, you grew up in the church, you grew up in the temple or wherever, it doesn't matter. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And to advance this argument, Paul invokes a name, and that name is Abraham. Now, it feels like an abrupt mention here for Paul to, in chapter 4, just drop in Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Why does Paul mention Abraham here? Well, invoking Abraham's name is a bit like Paul dropping the mic. Because for Israel's history, there was no one of greater significance than Abraham. He was a spiritual superhero. He was the father of the nation of Israel. And so for Paul to drop in Abraham here is to make his point with resounding emphasis. Basically, if Paul can demonstrate that Abraham wasn't justified by works, then everyone who comes after Abraham could never make that claim either. And so Paul drops Abraham's name in here, and he begins by saying this, if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, right? Which is true enough, yeah? Like if Abraham was made righteous by what he accomplished, by what he did, then he could come before God and say, God, thank you for maybe the kind of tick in the pants, thank you for calling me out of Ur, but I got it from here. If Abraham secured his righteousness on his own by what he accomplished, by what he did, then Abraham could look at God and say, look at me. You told me to leave Ur and I left Ur. I listened to you. Surely salvation is in my hands. But this isn't what happened. Paul knows that. And Israel knows that. They just have to be reminded. So in verse 3, what does Paul do? Well, he reminds them. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 here. Now, you may not be familiar with what happens in Genesis 15, but Genesis 15 is one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. Because in Genesis 15, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. And so if you did the spring Bible study, then maybe you're a little bit more familiar with the life of Abraham. But if not, let me just remind you of what's happening in Genesis 15. So I'm going to take us there, and if you've got your Bibles, it's worth turning there because we're going to be there for a second, because to really explore what Paul's doing in Romans 4, we have to look at what he's referencing in Genesis chapter 15. It's okay, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to take a look at this. Genesis 15, God has called Abraham out of Ur, okay? He's called him out of a pagan land. He's called him out of nowhere, really, is what you should read here. Okay, Abraham is out there. God calls him and says, go, go to a land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you a land that will be your place. And you're going to reflect my purposes to the world. And Abraham stumbles in this journey, doesn't he? Like he, he's a little bit faltering in his faith, right? Can you remember some of the things that Abraham did? Like right out of the gate, Abraham tries to give away his wife as his sister because he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to kill him because Sarah is so beautiful, right? So Abraham is not like the most trusting, faithful guy. He stumbles in his starting of walking with God. But in Genesis 15, God wants to make very clear to Abraham that guess what, Abraham? 
Even if you're faithless, I'm going to remain faithful. So in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, it says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then verse six, and he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, Abraham is struggling in his faith. He's struggling to trust God because God has told Abraham, leave your land, leave your family, leave everything you've ever known. And I'm gonna take you to this place. I'm going to make you a great people. And yet Abraham is telling God, I don't even have one child. I'm childless. I have no heir. I have no one who will continue the legacy. I have no one who will continue the journey. Why aren't you delivering on the promises you've made? And God tells Abraham, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. Go out and look at the sky, number the stars. That will be your people. They will be innumerable. And Abraham's saying, but I don't even have one. I don't even have one. And yet here, after hearing God, it says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. He goes on in verses 12 and following. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation and I will rescue them and I will bring them back to this land. And then in verse 17, something profound happens and it's easy to miss it because it's covered in ancient Near Eastern customs. Verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, these sacrifices that Abraham had laid out. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I'm going to give you all of this. Now, in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham would have known exactly how this covenant-keeping ceremony, what it would have looked like. Because this was an ancient Near Eastern custom of making covenant. Okay, stick with me because this is crucial for understanding righteousness. You see, what God does is he puts Abraham in his sleep and he gives him a dream. And in that dream, there are these severed pieces, these severed sacrifices. You see, when in the ancient Near East, they were cutting a covenant, they would take an animal, they would sever it in two, and they would put one half on one side, one half on the other side, and a line. And when they were making a covenant, the higher party would have the lesser party, the least powerful party, walk through those severed sacrifices. And here's what the promise was. The higher party was making a promise to the lesser party. If you keep covenant with me, then I will do to your enemies what you have done to this sacrifice. But if you break your covenant with me, then I will do to you what you have done to this sacrifice. You see, these ancient Near Eastern covenant customs were there in place so that a lesser party, a less powerful person, could receive the benefits of submitting to a higher party, a higher power something that had more influence, someone that had more influence. And so when Abraham has this dream and he sees the severed sacrifices, do you know who he's thinking is going to walk through them? Abraham. 
Why? Because Abraham's the lesser party. He's less powerful than God. And yet who in the dream walks through the severed sacrifices? It is God himself. Why is this significant? Because when God does this with Abraham, he's pronouncing a covenant of grace with all those who would come after Abraham and trust in him. And what he is saying is this, that when you make covenant with God, he gets what only you deserve. He gets all the judgment and you get what only he deserves, which is all the righteousness, all the grace. You see, when Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, he's reminding Israel and he's reminding everyone in the church in Rome of one crucial reality when it comes to righteousness. Righteousness is something that we desperately need that only God can provide and he does it by grace and he secures that grace in one way, by taking the judgment of sin against himself. You see, Paul is reminding Israel and he's telling us this. You and I, we deserve the judgment. We stand in judgment. God is fit and just to judge us of our sins, to do to us what is done to the covenant sacrifice. And yet, because God is gracious, he takes the judgment upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Abraham's belief is an early indicator. It's a foreshadowing of how we are to receive righteousness. That our righteousness will not come by our works. It won't come by our earning. It won't come by being impressive to God or even following the radical call of God on our lives. Although all of those things are good, it will come through believing God, through taking God at his word. Paul is demonstrating that faith preceded the law. Faith preceded circumcision. Faith preceded anything that Abraham could do to merit salvation. Paul is telling us loudly and clearly, salvation has always come through faith, even with Father Abraham. How were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way that we are saved today, by faith in one who would take the judgment upon himself not by trying to bear the judgment by themselves. You see, it's never been the case, and it will never be the case, that we can obey our way into God's favor. It's easy to think that the way to God, the way to have God's love, the way to earn God's righteousness is to impress him. Because many of us have learned that that's the way that you earn affection. Right? Whether in your relationship with your father, or your mother, or your peers, You've come to believe, implicitly or explicitly, that the quickest way to be loved is to earn it, to be impressive, to merit the love that you receive, right? Doesn't that feel instinctive to you? Doesn't that just feel natural, right? When you think about your relationships with the people you want to love you, that if you could just you could just impress them, if you could just garner a little bit more, if you could just earn a little bit more, if you could just do a little bit more, then they would say that you're beloved. If you don't feel that, you're lying to yourself. Our muscle memory is legalism. Our muscle memory is we have to earn the love that we receive. But with God, it isn't the case. God doesn't invite us to exhaust ourselves trying to earn his love. Abraham was not impressive. Go look at his life. It's not impressive. He falters in every single step in his journey. It is always two steps forward, three steps back with Abraham. He fails and he fails and he fails and he fails. And do you know what's resting underneath him every time he fails? The faithfulness of God and covenant love. 
That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is this unbreakable, unshakable foundation that is secure because it's secured by God, not because it's secured by us. Paul wants the church in Rome to hear this, and he wants them to receive it by faith, to believe. We've been talking about faith, what Abraham exercises in believing God and taking God at his word. We've been talking about faith as something that involves our head, agreement, Believing and trusting in what God says, our heart affections, loving God with our heart and with our desires, and our hands, allegiance, agreement, affections, allegiance. That's what belief and faith is. It's entrusting of our whole self to God. This is what Abraham does when he hears God's word, and he does it imperfectly, but in doing so, God covers all of the imperfections. And why does God do this work? Well, he does this work because God is gracious in gift-giving. Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, Paul uses this word gift here. He uses this word gift here as really a stand-in for grace, The words both kind of share similar Greek roots, and Paul interplays grace and gift throughout his letters. And here, he's saying that the reason we can be counted as righteous is because God is gracious in gift-giving. God is gracious in gift-giving. The righteousness we receive is not earned, and so subsequently, it's given. And so it's received as a gift. Faith receives from God righteousness. What we desperately need and only God can provide. This righteousness that is God's holy nature. This righteousness that is God's seal of approval. This righteousness that's God's holy standard. This righteousness that our hearts hunger and thirst for. God provides that righteousness as a gift. As a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to crawl over it. You see, this grace that God gives is a gift. And he gives us this gift in order that we might give ourselves back to God. God provides us righteousness in order that we may be made righteous and live righteously. And Paul wants us to understand this because many of us think that grace is the reward for fruitful effort in God's divine labor camp. That if we can just earn our keep, then God will be gracious with us. And yet Paul's saying, no, that's not what a gift is. If you work for it and it's given to you, that's your due. It's not a gift. But what God has given is beyond what you could earn in any number of lifetimes. You couldn't work for it. You will not be able to earn it. And so your receiving of it is received as a gift. That's what grace is. Grace isn't what we deserve. Grace isn't our due. Grace isn't what we've earned. Grace is what God gives as a gift. As a gift. And this gift is righteousness. It's righteousness. It's freedom from debtor's prison. It's acquittal. It's innocence. It's purity for the unclean. It's perfection for the fallen. This is what God gives in righteousness. And Abraham's life is a demonstration of it. Abraham was a pagan living in Ur. He's unrighteous. He's lost. He's broken by sin. His life is not flawless. Right out of the gate, he's making mistake after mistake after mistake. And yet, God is faithful to Abraham. God is gracious to Abraham. Abraham doesn't get what he deserves. Abraham gets what God deserves. That's grace. 
What belongs to God by nature is given to us by grace. That's righteousness. This is what God does. And you can see that eventually Abraham comes to a place where he trusted God with his most sacred thing, didn't he? Because how does Abraham's life end? It doesn't end like it begins. Abraham's story doesn't end like it begins. Abraham is faltering. But then when it comes to the most crucial thing, to the thing he had waited the longest for, to Abraham's very self, Abraham doesn't withhold it from God. You see, this is what a life that comes to believe in the power of grace does. It doesn't become less active in righteousness. It becomes more active in righteousness because righteousness is no longer something you have to earn. It's something you're standing on. It's the air you're breathing. It's the water you're drinking. It's the food on your spiritual plate. You see, the freedom of grace is not a freedom that we don't get to obey. It's the freedom that we don't have to obey to impress God and that we when we obey, we get more of God. Abraham's life was a testament to the story of the Christian life. We are nowhere. We are in the middle of nowhere. We are lost. We are strangers. We are far from God. God rescues us because of his covenant grace. He gives us righteousness. And then he says, live freely in my world. And when you fail, I'll be faithful. And when you succeed, you'll be blessed. I mean, come on. Like, I got to tell you, like, this is good news. It's good news for exhausted people. And you're exhausted. I know that because I talk to you. And you tell me you're exhausted. You tell me you're beleaguered. You tell me you're white. You're fried. You're stretched thin. You're wrung out. You are more exhausted than you know. And the solution to that will not be life hacking your way into efficiency. All that is, is a different kind of self-help that's gonna be packaged to you to sell you a promise of a life free of exhaustion. Let me tell you something. You live in a broken world. Life in this world is going to be hard until the kingdom comes. But let me release you from the greatest hardship. You don't have to earn God's affection. In Christ, you're free from God's judgment. You can sleep well. You can sleep well knowing that God is undergirding our lives with his faithfulness and it won't be broken. You see, just like Abraham, God calls us out of darkness and asks us to trust him in faith. Just like Abraham, God is going to tell us that faith means entrusting the most precious things of our life to him. And just like Abraham, when we do this, when we trust God with our whole self, holding nothing back, God is going to bless us. Look at where Paul goes. He's invoked Abraham. Now, what's another name that he drops here? David. Okay, because if Abraham is number one, David is a close second. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So Paul's looking back at what David said in the Psalms, and he's saying, David maybe didn't see the whole picture, but this is what he was getting at. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you know what David is saying here? Do you know what Paul is trying to get us to see? The blessed life is the righteous life. Okay? Now this may not be what we mean when we say hashtag blessed, but it is what the Bible means when it talks about being blessed and being the recipient of the blessing of God. It means this. It means to be free from the judgment of God against sin. 
It means to be liberated from a tormented conscience. It means to be freed from the shame that paralyzes. You see, David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What are, what's the opposite of all these? Sometimes it's a helpful way, particularly when reading the Psalms, to take something that's stated in the positive and state it in the negative because sometimes we'll go blind to what's being said. So imagine if David had said the opposite of blessing. Imagine if he had talked about curse. Cursed are those whose lawless deeds are not forgiven. Cursed are those whose sins are covered. Cursed is the man against whom the Lord will count his sin. You see, David could have written that in the negative. Why? Because by nature, that's where we are. By nature, we are those who are cursed because our lawless deeds are not forgiven. By nature, we are cursed because we are those whose sins are not covered. By nature, we are those who are cursed because the Lord will count our sin against us. That is who we are by nature. By nature, we are cursed. We are cursed because of the law of sin. We are cursed because of death. We are cursed because we have fallen short of the glory of God. That is bad news. And Paul wants us to see that it's bad news because then we can truly begin to enjoy the riches and the death of good news. What changes? What changes in our lives to move us from curse to blessing? What's different about the one who is cursed than the one who is blessed? Is it that the one who is blessed did more? They hustled harder. They were more successful. They achieved more. They were more impressive to God. No. It's grace. Grace is the bridge from curse to blessing. Grace and grace and grace in Jesus. It is the status of righteousness freely given and gladly received by God. That's what moves us from being cursed by nature to blessed by grace. Paul wants us to see this, and he is repeating it because we are hard of hearing when it comes to the good news of the gospel. He's going to say it more. Let me spoil it for you. In the fall, we're going to do 13 sermons in Romans chapter 5. It's almost not even 13 verses, okay? The reason we're going to do that is because my heart is hard of hearing when it comes to good news, and your heart is too. And we need to hear it over and over and over again. So let me ask you again. Does the Lord count your sin against you? If you appeared before God today, would he call you blessed or would he call you cursed? And what would be the foundation of that blessing? What would you be standing on? To receive the status of one whose sins are not counted against him. Whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Because any foundation but Christ will not be strong enough. It won't be secure enough. It won't be stable enough. Not for this life and not for the life to come. I quoted Tupac in the beginning, so I have to land by quoting somebody on the opposite side of the spectrum. Johnny Cash, the man in black. In the years just before his death, Cash started to release some of like the most raw material he released in his whole life. He put out a ton of albums. It was all like post-mortem stuff. Even after he died, he was still putting out stuff. I don't know how that worked, but Johnny Cash was prolific even in death. And one of the albums that came out was called 100 Highways, and I love this album. At the beginning of the album, he sings a song of condemnation. 
He says, go tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's going to cut him down. He said, you can run on for a long time, you can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. You see, this is a song of judgment. This is a song where the songwriter is reflecting on the reality that God is going to count our sin. It won't be forgotten. This is a song of the cursed life, a song that says it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter how far you run or how much you hide, whatever darkness you let invade the corner of your heart, however much you think that you can avoid the eyes of God, God is going to cut you down. But then later in the album, he sings a song of deliverance. He says, I couldn't manage the problems I laid on myself, and it just made it worse when I laid them on somebody else. So I finally surrendered and brought it all down in despair. I cried out for help, and I felt a warm comforter there. And he sings this chorus. I came to believe in a power much higher than I. I came to believe that I needed help to get by. In childlike faith, I gave in and gave him a try. And I came to believe in a power much higher than I. This is a song of deliverance. A song that's birthed within the desperate hope. That's awakened within a human heart. A heart that cries out like a child. Help! I need help! This is what it means to be blessed, to have zero question or uncertainty over where you stand with God, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God counts you righteous and he will not count your sin against you, not today, not tomorrow, and not in that near or far future day where we stand before him in judgment. This is what it means to cry out to God for help and to know there is no reason for him to respond but grace, but grace to have the curse of judgment removed from you and placed on Jesus, to be free from the penalty of sin, the penalty of death, the penalty of condemnation, the penalty of a prison of shame. This is what the blessed life means. Do you want to live the blessed life? You can live it. You can live it. You can go out from here today with no hesitation and no uncertainty and no confusion, knowing exactly what God thinks about you because he's declared it in his son. It's unchanging. It's unbreakable. Why, why, why would we settle for anything less than the pronouncement of God on our lives? Listen, maybe you've been sticking with us and you're like, I don't think I have received that righteousness. I don't know what God would think about me if I stood before him. Well, you can receive that righteousness today. Not through some special incantation or formula, not through doing something or being impressive, but by crying out to God in prayer and saying, God, would you give me what I need and what you and you alone can provide? And he will, because he's gracious. And for Christians in this room, you may think, hey, pastor, I already received this righteousness then live on it. Live on it. Live radically free lives. Be ambitious. Pursue holiness. Be free from the judgment and cancellation of the world. Why? Because you're free from the judgment of God. You've been rescued. What is there to lose on the road to righteousness? Nothing of consequence. Nothing of significance. 
every deep and meaningful thing, everything that your heart hungers and thirsts for at its most core fundamental level has been given to you by grace and can never be removed. What do you have to lose in pursuing the God who is never going to give up on you? What do you have to lose? You have nothing to lose. Everything has been secured in a treasure chest of God's love and he holds the lock and key and nothing is removed from it ever at all because it's sealed with the blood of the Son. This is righteousness. Do you want to live free? Do you want to be blessed? You can be. Only in one place, the righteousness of Jesus. And good news, it's free for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that whether Abraham, David, or Kyle Worley, that you look at the fallen and the unfaithful. You look at those whose faith is feeble and frail, whose trust goes and ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys. You look at us, and by grace, you call us beloved. And we have done nothing to earn it. I just cannot imagine. Thank you, God, for your righteousness. I don't deserve it, and I can't earn it, and yet you've given it freely. Remind us, God, of what it means to stand in a righteousness, not our own, that cannot be removed. Please, shake us. Give us a spiritual appetite for righteousness, for we will be satisfied. We pray these things. In the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, amen. Would you stand with us as we receive the Lord's Supper?